You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 224 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, well, you know, it's not a big week, so fair to middling, which is okay. I'm okay. good. I've got stuff on and things happening, and, you know, it's just a week, really. Yeah. Just a week. Well, that sounds good. No highlights, um, no lowlights, just poof, good. <laughs> poof. Okay. <laughs> I, I wonder how you That's would a, write that. I don't know how you quite write that. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. I was just wondering how you would do that. It's like humph. I like the word humph. And yes. um, I do use it, actually. I realise it's a word that does come up in my books. And I remember trying to work out how the best, you know, when someone humphs and they just, you know, they're kind of like hmm, at yes. you. To, yes. Working out how to write that wasn't easy. Yeah. How do you write that? Well, I think we ended up with H U M. PH, but I think I started yes. out with H M M P H, as in ah, <laughs> that yes, kind of thing. Yes, yes, because I never I, really I think it embraced harumph. You know how there's that one, H A R R U M P H. Never really quite embraced that, which is I think what meant does to that be a similar. Like? Humph. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I prefer the shortened humph better. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? How's your week looking? Is it humphy, harumphy, or not at all? I'm hoping to do a lot of catch up this week because last week was really busy because I went to Brisbane, had a jam packed few days in Brisbane. Oh, yeah. And that was it very did. exciting. It was great to meet so many listeners of the podcast community who came to the talk uh, I did on how to be a writer slash artist slash creative while you still have a day job. Thank you, everyone, for coming to that. I hope you had a good time. Um, and I also. Uh, managed to take myself out on two creative dates. Number one, I went to Aladdin, as in the musical, because I love musicals. And Mm -hmm. number two, I just went to this random play because I was in a cocktail bar trying to like book tickets on my iPad to something and couldn't Mm -hmm. find anything. But the barman said, oh, you should go to the La Boite Theatre at the Roundhouse or whatever. So I just figured out what was on that night, booked a ticket, went completely, did not know what I was in for, but it was fantastic. There was a play called The Dead Devils of Cockle Cockle Creek or Cockle something. Um, Very good. And um, also, yeah, mentored a few people um, in the Freelance Writing Masterclass program and very happy to announce that we are starting in Brisbane. The Australian Writers' Centre is starting courses in Brisbane in May. So super exciting. That is super exciting. Super exciting. Uh, And what are we starting with? What are are you starting starting with? with? I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) What are you starting starting with? with? I'm not going. Creative writing stage one and writing picture books. So the wonderful Zanny Louise, who has been on this podcast, uh, will oh, yes. be doing writing picture books. And um, the wonderful Angela Slatter, who's also taught in our Sydney Ooh. classrooms, but she's Brisbane-based. And, you know, I think her third novel is coming out this year and she is the master of the short story as well. So she will be doing creative writing. So super, super exciting. And also we Brilliant. will be having uh, writing books for children and Lots of other courses, but we're starting off with those two in May. So make sure that That's you fantastic. are on the mailing list to, to be informed. So we should go to Brisbane. Well, speaking now. of short stories, didn't you make an announcement last week as well? Wasn't there a oh, furious yes. fiction winner? 
Yes, yes. So yes. we received hundreds of entries in the 55-hour window because it's called Furious Fiction for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that you have to write furiously sometime in those 55 hours. It's the first Friday of every month. We started in February and it starts at 5 p.m. on the Friday. <laughs> It's an awful lot of going on here. Exactly. And uh, entrants wrote their best 500-word stories or or less than 500, fewer than 500 words. And um, the February challenge was to write a story with an opening sentence of exactly three words. And the the story also had to include the words 40, flamboyant, fortune, flavour and furious somewhere in the story and include the prop a prop of a feather in some way. So big congratulations yes. to our winner, Detra Rose, who won the $500 prize money for her moving story, Fill Your Boots. And if you would like to read her story, go to writercentercomau slash furious to read Detra Rose's story and also some excellent shortlisted stories. But Furious Fiction March is kicking off very soon. Mm. So this is every month you can win $500. So make sure that you've signed up to the Furious Fiction fan club so you can be notified as soon as the competition opens because you've only got your 55 hours, remember, first Friday of every month. Um, it's free to enter and uh, you could win a $500 prize. So just if you want to sign up to make sure you're part of the Furious Fiction fan club, go to writercentercomau slash furious. There you go. And we'll put the link in the show notes. And I just want to say I think you have used up your entire quota of Fs. <laughs> for the podcast. You are not allowed to use the letter again. (laughs) Now, we want to give a big shout-out to Kate Pianto, who has left us a review on iTunes, and she's titled it Just the Kick in the Behind I Needed. And Kate has said, As I drive to and from home, it feels like Val and Al are right beside me in the car discussing all things writing, like two mates tagging along for the ride. I've always loved writing, however, have allowed adult life to become an excuse for why I seem to do it less and less. So much so that I feel my writing skills have suffered a severe blow. The girls, however, uh, have ignited the flame to my motivation and I have finally got around to starting my blog, something that I've I've wanted to do forever and always found every excuse under the sun to put off. Listening to their good-hearted banter has equipped me with a little more drive to start attacking some of my writing goals. Keep up the insightful and amusing work, girls. You are so valuable to our writing community. Oh, Oh, wow. That is so sweet. That's so not. I'm so happy that you've started a blog. That is yes. fantastic. Look at you go. That's so Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Kate, for your lovely words. Really, really appreciate it. Certainly has made our day. I'm sure I speak for Al oh, when I say that, correct? Always. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings. So thank you again, Kate. But let's move on to uh, the world of writing and publishing this week, shall we, Al? Let's. <laughs> Our, let's I've got a link Sorry, here. were you waiting for more? <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I'm so disappointing, um, aren't I, really? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let's do that. That's a great idea, Val. Come on, let's. <laughs> Okay, so let's go to Anne R. Allen's blog. I know you like Anne R. Allen's blog, don't you? I do. Uh, I do. There's a great post on there called Plot Holes and Potholes, Eight Common Mistakes Readers Hate and How to Fix Them. And I think this Uh is really cool because she's she's covered eight and you can read all eight yourself. Um, We'll put the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. But a couple that I wanted to um, highlight, and that is um, one thing to be aware of, info dumps. I read this in manuscripts all the time where maybe it's backstory, maybe it's stuff that you've thought in your head that you think is vital for your character development, and it probably is, but you don't necessarily have to write every single thing about your character in a particular scene you need to be able to maybe allude to it or know it yourself so that your character is being 
written in a way that's believable, that has that backstory, mm. but dumping all that info can just be, where is this going and why am I getting the entire CV of this character or every <laughs> single thing has ever happened to this character? So I love yeah. the CV. Always good. <laughs> and then and then he worked here and then he did this and then yes. he did that. Um, intro exactly. dumps are, they, it's, it's very hard. I mean, I'm speaking as, as one with experience in this area and it, it, it is difficult to, um, <laughs> the kind of thing, they just kind of happen. It's not like you go out of your way to go, I'm going to put everything I know about this character into this particular scene. Um, where you, the real fix for these particular, for the info dump, I mean, there is this notion that the information if the information has to be there, you've got to find a way to put it into the story, but it doesn't all have to go in at once. So it can come out in a conversation here. It can come out in a thought process there. And, of course, the whole showing, not telling. This is where showing, not telling um, really comes into its own um, is really, really important. But the thing is I think what you need to realise as an as a writer, as an author with this stuff, is that um, this is what editing's for. This, this is actually where editing really comes into its own because you will be reading something and you'll suddenly realise that you have given this character's entire life history here because you needed to know it to move forward to the next bit. You needed to know that it was happening, so therefore you thought your reader needed to know it. Mm. Um, but you will realise that your reader actually doesn't need to know it all right there. So that's where you go back a few scenes and you think, can I put some of that information into here? Can I take this entire scene out and put one piece of information that I need somewhere else. So just look at, we don't, I mean, it's the kind of thing that's going to happen as you write. It's just very hard to avoid it because it's just coming out of your head and that's how it works. But where you look for it really, really hard is in editing. Yeah, absolutely. And another one that I think that is really useful, because I read this too. In fact, I read a manuscript the other day that that had this is do nothing go nowhere dialogue she's called it <laughs> do nothing go nowhere dialogue and that is where you just kind of have this inane banter that really does nothing and goes nowhere so sometimes you feel like you need to set up a scene or 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 because that's you have that sort of perfunctory uh, small talk that goes on with normal people when you say hi to each other and if you see each other on the street or whatever. But sometimes it's better when you're writing to get straight into the action or straight into the, the point with a dialogue and not have the do nothing, go nowhere dialogue. Is, is that no, that's something right. that you do? Do you go through your manuscripts and kind of do a bit of a cross out with any di- with do nothing dialogue? No, that that's something that I have to say that I have got very good at over the years of practice, mm. and I think it's partly also, and this is where. It's a really interesting thing, you know, when you write for kids, you have to go and talk to kids about writing all the time. Like that's what you do as, as, as part of your role. So I'm often in classrooms doing workshops with kids about writing. And one of the things that I always say, one of my points that I give them is always give your characters their best lines. And we have a conversation about how what you want to give them is the stuff that matters. They, we don't need to know that they answered the phone and said hello. We don't need to do that. We know they answered the phone. We just basically have to get into the point of the conversation. So give your characters their best lines. So I think I have that in the back of my head all the time. And I also know that dialogue dialogue is, is obviously there's a few reasons you have it. It shows character. Um, but the main point of dialogue is moving the story forward. So if the conversation's not moving the story forward, don't have the conversation. Just paraphrase. Mm. You could just, you know, and then he saw Bill and they talked about the dentist and he moved on. Where's the next most important bit? Mm. What's the next point? You know, like the yeah. fact that he saw, you know, and, and, and it's a useful thing, those kinds of conversations or that kind of line is a useful thing if you're writing crime fiction because if Bill or George turn out to be the you know what I mean? It's sort of like you mention them that the conversation was had, but you move on because, and the reader moves on with you. But mm. there's George in the story, um, but he's not a focal point at that point. And I think that that that's also something that you can use dialogue or lack thereof um, to show. But I yeah. think one of the most interesting points in this particular Anne R. Allen piece mm. um, is this one about lapses in logic. Now, oh, lapses yeah. in logic are something, yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting thing. I think we've talked before about how so much of writing is problem solving. And um, I actually had a conversation with with um, 
somebody last week about this, with a writer last week about this. I was doing one of my mentoring coaching sessions and we were talking about um, – about you know her her story and her plot and her manuscript, and um, one of the things I was saying to her is that because something happened in this plot, and I was like, well, why did this happen? This is completely out of character for your particular character. Why did this happen? And she's like, well, I needed the character to be, and I was like, no, no, no. This is where you need to come back. This is not about you. This is about what would your. This is not about I needed my character to fall down a hole be in the middle of the night. So I sent my terrified of the dark character out into the forest in the middle of the night with no reason except that I needed her to be there. Um, that that's not going to work for a reader. The reader is going to throw your book across the room. If you're going to do this, you need to go back several steps and think about what would make this character go out into the forest in the middle of the night. You need really good reasons for your characters to do things and they can't just do them because you want them to because you need them to meet Bill or George at the dentist you can't do that you know it's got to be why is this character so this whole notion of I think when you're working through again your edits you need to sort of think about why your character is doing things and if you haven't given them a good enough reason if it just looks like they're there because you needed them to be there You've got to go back a couple of scenes and put in some good reasons as to why they're going to do this. So yes. lapses in logic, also known as plot holes. Yes, yes, there. that's a good one. The other one also, mm. which um, I, I experience in the – more so when people are telling me stories, is mm. dropped subplots where – and basically in this post it talks about the fact that you may have a subplot about whatever, but by the yeah. end of the story – that the subplot hasn't gone anywhere and or you haven't yeah. finished the end of that little story and it's yeah. frustrating for the reader because they're thinking but whatever happened to so and so yeah so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know I know a couple of people who when they're telling me stories they will tell me the main point but I I always end up going I have I haven't got a closed loop with the with the subplot yeah. that they've told me so I've said but whatever happened to Bill and Jane you know and they go oh yeah oh. so it's it's frustrating to a, to a reader or to your audience when when you, you think you've tied up the, your main story and you have, but they're still, they haven't been able to appreciate it or or sit comfortably with it because they're still wondering what's happened to Bill and Jane. Anyway. <laughs> Poor Bill and Jane, left dangling forever. No, because it's like there's this study, right? Um, oh, I can't remember when it was, but it's a study that they did with waiters you know, who have, you know, how waiters, um, the good waiters, they have to remember your order. They don't write it down. They, you tell yeah, them yeah. you're having the salmon and the whatever. So they did this huge study mm. with waiters and they found that they could remember the entire order. Like there could be seven people, eight people, whatever. But And, and, and the, the food will come out and then they'll deliver, say, four of the plates because they can't carry eight. And they mm. can still remember all eight people's orders. And then they'll deliver and, and and then finally they'll deliver everything. And once they know that the table has all the food they've ordered, they cannot actually remember any more. They cannot remember it anymore, even though only like two minutes have passed. Because yeah. our, our brains know that there's this loop that hasn't closed yet and that's the same with your subplots. You, 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 yeah, you're kind yeah. of a bit stressed until you close that loop. And so you, yeah. therefore you can't okay. enjoy the main story properly. Anyway. I like it. Yes. Let's move on to another link called The Art of the Paragraph and we'll put this in the show notes. It's from Writer's Digest. It's this the, – the post itself isn't – wonderful because there's lots of broken links in it but it 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 spoke about the fact that we need to sometimes think about where we put our paragraphs now this this really gave me some food for thought al because i think you and i just instinctively know where to put our paragraphs because we've done it for so many years but mm. i am editing a manuscript at the moment um, it's actually a structural edit so i'm not going into lots of the paragraphs, but I am noticing, oh, wow, why wouldn't you put a paragraph there? Or it would be so much more powerful if you put a paragraph there. 
And uh-huh. some people just think, you know, just make evenly spaced paragraphs. But sometimes where you put the paragraph can really help in the pacing of the scene or in the emphasis uh-huh. of what is coming next so that the reader uh-huh. knows, you know, and, and don't you, do, like you probably do it instinctively and you probably haven't even thought of this question because you do it instinctively, right, would you say? Do you do it instinctively? I would, I, w- I would actually say that. I would agree with you on that. Um, the only place I ever really think about paragraphing is actually if I'm writing feature articles and then my focus is on keeping them relatively short because I know how important that is for readability with, with um, yeah. feature stories and text. So when it comes to actually writing fiction, um, I think – it's an instinctive thing. Like if it's, if I'm slowing, if I'm slowing the pace down, my paragraphs are longer, my sentences are longer. Um, there's more description involved. Um, if it's, if if it's an action scene, it's just short paragraph after short paragraph, you know, lots of one line dialogue. Um, it just speeds up the reading. It speeds up the pace. Um, and I would honestly say that I don't think about it at all. Yes. And I think if people who, um, our uh, uh, avid readers maybe do it a bit more instinctively, but also mm. people who are readers who pay attention to their paragraphs, you know, because some people mm. just read and don't really analyse what they're reading. But I think if you, once you become a writer, to try and make a habit of analysing what you're writing, sometimes, of course, just totally read for pleasure at the beach, go nuts. But sometimes it's useful just to really put on that analytical hat to see why have they broken the paragraph there? Why didn't they just break it there? And think about it and think about is it because they've tried to slow it down? Is it because they've wanted more emphasis or whatever? So, Mm. yeah, sometimes pay attention to things like paragraphs, which you might not usually pay attention to. Hmm. All right, let us move on to our competition this week. You can win a copy of The Dream Handbook, The Ultimate Guide to Interpreting Your Dreams by Jane Teresa Anderson. This book aims to help you decode your dreams and provide amazing dream alchemy practices to transform your life. It's a great book to have by your bedside. And uh, I thought that this was an interesting one to give away because – I don't know if you remember when we interviewed Mark Holden, he actually included quite a lot of his dreams into his memoir and also how those dreams then related to his life. And I was talking, I personally don't even remember my dreams, but um, I was talking to somebody the other day who says she totally understands the meaning of her dreams and how it relates to her life. So in case there are some listeners out there who are into that sort of thing, that's why I got this book. So you can go to writercenter.com.au slash win to enter. Entries close on the 5th of March. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. If you go to writercenter.com.au slash win, there'll be some other book for you to win. That won't be about dreams. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Are you ready for the word of the week, Al? (laughs) I was born ready, Al. Born ready. All right, I really like this word. Okay, punctilious. That's P-U-N-C-T-I-L-I-O-U-S. Punctilious. <laughs> have you used that? <laughs> Do you know what it means? Oh, I was waiting for it. I have. It's. I actually think it's a great word. I really like it, and it's it's one that I've actually that I have used in the past, and also it's one that I do read regularly. What do you read that you read this regularly? I read lots of different things, Val. I'm a widely read sort of a girl. It's not a particular, I don't, I don't think that's a particularly unusual word. I could be wrong. No, No, it's not super unusual. Let me know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I, and I like it. I think it's a great word. Yes. So come on, let's go. All right. Tell us all about it. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, this means strict or exact in the observance of forms in conduct or actions. So, you know, like etiquette and stuff. So you might say she curtsied punctiliously when she met the Queen. So the thing is she may not have actually wanted to do it, but she did it because it was the right thing to do. But what I thought was Uh interesting about the word punctilious is that it does come from the word punctilio, which means small Uh point. 
And that is that the that word punctilio also influenced the word punctual, which obviously means to be on time, but originally meant to be precise on every point, and mm-hmm. puncture to make small points or small pricks, and punctuation, which is making small marks in your writing. Cool, huh? Very cool. <laughs> Super cool, one might Super even say. Cool. <laughs> Super cool. All right, awesome. Uh, let's move on then. Um, who's our writer in residence this week? Ah, well, this week we are talking to Eliza Henry-Jones. And um, so Eliza, I, I remember a few years ago that my, what was then called the Pink Fibro Book Club, um, we, we used to read a book every month and everyone would talk about it. And we had um, live uh, sort of Facebook interviews, you know, with, with ver- when I say live, we didn't have video options back in those days. We only had the typing option. But because um, it was a couple of years ago, but we used to do, to do, um, chats, Facebook chats, whatever. And Eliza was one of our featured authors because she had a book called In the Quiet, which was uh, a book for adults. Um, she was only quite young at the time, but it was a book for adults and it was it was really well received and it was shortlisted for a whole bunch of awards. And um, it was very, very popular. It was a very popular read with the Pink Fibro Book Club at that time. So I was really interested um, when I saw that Eliza now has a um, a book for young adults coming out. So she has, she's since written a second, um, adult book and now she's got her first young adult novel coming out as well. Um, and I was really interested to talk to her about it, about the differences that she's found working, uh, writing for the two different audiences. And as you'll find, uh, in the, in the interview, one of the things that I was interested in was when I read in the quiet, which was her first novel, I thought that one of the things that was particularly good about that book was the teen characters. She did a very, very good job of, of, you know, um, depicting those teen characters. So I wanted to ask her about how she found that with regards to um, writing for young adults um, as opposed to adults. So here is our interview. Eliza Henry-Jones is the author of two novels for adults and now one YA novel. Her debut novel, In the Quiet, was published in 2015 and was shortlisted for the Readings Prize for New Australian Fiction and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, as well as being longlisted for several others. Her second novel, Ache, was released in June last year, and now we have her first young adult novel, Peers for Pearl, published in March 2018. So, welcome to the program, Eliza. Thank you. All right. So we are going to go way back to the hazy mists of time of 2015 and back to the beginning. Can you tell us a bit about how In the Quiet came to be published? Okay. Well, for me, writing has always been something that I just do. So I've written a manuscript every year since I was 14 and um, I sort of, writing's always been my passion and I, I didn't really feel like I was good enough (laughs) to make a career out of it so I went down the psychology route and ended up working in a drug and alcohol center working with families and children Um, in the meantime I was sort of you know busily on the side on weekends and at nights just writing away and um, in 2011 I finished a manuscript and I sent it off to an agent called Sally Bird and she picked it up and I sort of thought great this is happening. I'm going to get published. You know, I was so excited and manuscript went out and I got a whole lot of, Oh, we like your writing, but not this manuscript. It wasn't marketable. It didn't have enough of a hook. It was very, very quiet. Um, in the meantime, I had written another novel called in the quiet and uh, my agent read it and she said she really loved it. But again, it was quite a quiet story and she was concerned that we, wouldn't get a different response than the previous one, but you know, out it went. And um, I it went out to ten publishers, and I ended up with five offers, Gosh. which absolutely blew my little brain because I had completely and utterly geared myself up for you know another ten thanks but no thanks spread over the better part of the year. Um, and I ended up signing a three book deal with Harper Collins, which was an absolute dream come true and I still pinch myself. So interestingly, like what do you think, if you look at those two manuscripts now with, you know, the, the, the benefit of hindsight and all those things, can you see 
why that one was so everyone was so excited about that one, but not about the first one that you sent out? Um, I, I've only looked back at the previous one very briefly because I find it a little bit cringy. Scared, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Um, but when I when I have when I did look over it, it isn't as strong as in the quiet. Um, the voice isn't as strong. The characters aren't as engaging. I don't think well, for me anyway. Um, and but I wouldn't. I, I think I'm still surprised that there was such a discrepancy between the two. Uh, and I guess that just comes back to it being it's such a subjective thing. It is, isn't it? And that's I guess something that you really only learn through the experience of going through the process, isn't that right? Absolutely. Mm. Um, so you you like a quiet book? Like I'm getting the vibe here that you quite enjoy a quiet book. When you talk about a quiet book, what do you mean by that? Um, I think a book that's probably more character driven than plot driven. So my my two, particularly my two, well, I think. Pierce of Pearl as well, so all three of my novels. They're very character-focused. They're very much about people's relationships with each other, how they're dealing with grief and trauma, um, what their internal world is like rather than being really plot-driven and who done it and the real page-turner in that sense. Mm. And how old were you when you say you've written a manuscript a year since you were 14? How old were you when In the Quiet came out? Um, I, I wrote it when I was 22 um, I signed the deal for it at 24 and it came out when I was 25. Right, because that's the other thing too. It all takes an awful lot of time. <laughs> it really does. It really does. So was there anything about, apart from that time factor, was there anything about the publishing process that surprised you? Um, how much How much of a collaboration the editing process was? I think I had it in my head and I'm sure there are a lot of um, aspiring writers out there who have it in their head as well that what you send out to the publisher has to be absolutely perfect and that's pretty much you know by a proofread sort of almost what goes to print mm. um, I was I was surprised at how much editing goes into it so um, there's a big structural edit so that's looking at all the overarching things and then there's the copy edit which is sort of line by line and then there's the proofing, so that's just making sure all the words are the words they're meant to be and all the commas and dots are in the right spot. And I, I hadn't really realised, I knew that the publishing itself, so, you know, making the book was a collaboration, but I hadn't realised that the story was so much of a collaboration too. So was your first um, structural edit, because I remember very, very <laughs> clearly the experience of my first structural edit and how traumatised I was by it, but how was that for you? Did you find it confronting? Actually, I, I really enjoyed the editing for In the Quiet. Because um, I <laughs> and you know, everyone talks about how grueling editing is and, and I didn't realise what a dream run I had with that book. Like it was a bit of an anomaly, I think, because it was a really quite a cruisy structural edit, quite a quite an easy copy edit and it just sort of popped through. Mm. And I really enjoyed having someone else's feedback and having working with editors who had so much expertise and knowledge and were so passionate about the book, being able to actually work with them was incredible. But um, the, So I sort of went into Ake and Ake ended up being rewritten entirely once, two big structural edits, and I think uh, I think it was two copy edits as well. So I, I sort of went into that thinking, oh, I've got this, I know, I know what to expect, and it was just a completely different creature. <laughs> um, so... Was Ake also, like, was it something that you started from scratch after In the Quiet was, was taken up or was it something that you had begun earlier and was something that you were then, you know, redrafting, et cetera, for, for publication? I, once I finish a manuscript, I immediately start the next one. Right. Um, and it's sort of out of habit. It's what I've always done. And it's also a way to deal with the anxiety of having your work out there, which yes. I find... I struggle with quite a lot. Yes. So I sort of transfer all of my anxiety and emotional neediness onto the whatever manuscript I'm working on at the moment. So I'd already written a couple of drafts of Ake by the time In the Quiet came out. And I got the idea for it. Actually, I heard a talk at a trauma conference I was presenting at. And it was about transgenerational bushfire trauma. And it really um, sort of clicked into place that that was something I wanted to write about because I'd sort of grown up with bushfire stories. Mm. So that was, you know, well and truly, um, 
in the process of becoming a book when In the Quiet came out. All right. So when In the Quiet came out and it was so well received, like it really was one of those um, one of those books that sort of was, you know, popped out of the out of the ether and lots of people were talking about it and um what did did that did you feel then that that put pressure on you for your second novel or was the fact that you had already written it drafted it did that sort of help to take the pressure off um it it was a lot of pressure um it it was the writing experience was completely different for me writing in the quiet I just was writing it for me basically you know I sort of had it in my head that you know if it got published that would be really nice but I wrote it I wrote what I wanted. I wrote it for myself. And suddenly with Ake, I had this idea of, of all these people that were going to read it and whether they were going to find that it was good enough. So suddenly I was thinking about, you know, is, is the editor going to like it? Is the publisher going to like it? Is the Marcoms team going to like it? And, and that was, that took a little bit of negotiating in my head to sort Mm of um, be able to still tap into that creativity and just, and just get it written. Um, so what I, did you do to deal with that? How did you manage it? Um, I actually, and this probably sounds a bit funny, but I've sort of, I tell myself that how all of that stuff, so how the book's edited, how it's marketed, how it sells, how it's reviewed, all of that, none of that is actually my business. <laughs> right. That, so Which I sort is of, true. Mm, so that's sort of how I frame it. My job is to just write the story. I'll do my best. Um, and then, you know, there's no point being debilitated about whether or not someone's going to like it or engage with it yet. You know, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I've just got to get it down on the paper and all that stuff. Not my business. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, a friend of mine, when when I was working on different manuscripts and I was, you know, freaking out on the ceiling and um, <laughs> she used to say to me, the only thing you can control in this process is what goes on the page. It's, that's yep. it. That's all you Absolutely. got, what goes on the page. And I think if you kind of can tap into that, it does help a great deal to just mm-hmm. keep you focused, doesn't it? Absolutely. Now, in the quiet, can you just, uh, for those readers out there who perhaps, you know, didn't read it a few years ago, can you just give us a little pricey of what that story was about? So in the quiet is narrated by a mother who's died. And and I think some people hear that and they think it's going to be a bit sci-fi or a bit, you know, full of ghosts or whatever, but it's actually, it's, it's very much just realism. Um, and it's basically this, this woman watching her family after she's died and the different ways that they're coping with her death. And, and it, it sounds probably a lot darker than it actually is. There's a lot of warmth in it. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of humor. Mm. And, um, and it was sort of came from me working in a parenting program at a drug and alcohol center and working with a lot of mothers and actually spending quite a lot of time thinking about what, what mothering actually is and what families are and how people cope with trauma and grief. Yeah, so I read In the Quiet uh, with my online book club, which at the time was known as the Pink Fibro Book Club, and it was very well received. Like There was a lot of love in the room. Um, but one thing that particularly struck me at the time was just how well you wrote the teen characters in the novel. They were very realistic. So I admit I was unsurprised when I heard you had a YA novel coming out. I was like, yes, this makes perfect sense. What did surprise me, however, was when I learned that this particular novel, P is for Pearl, is based on a manuscript that you drafted in your teens. Now, so my question then has to be, how similar is the final product to that first manuscript that you wrote? And how old were you when you wrote it? Uh, I was 16 when I wrote it. um, And I actually, because I was a little, I was 17 in year 12. Mm. So I wrote it sort of towards the end of year 11. And then in year 12, I actually for my final art project, I typeset all the pages, I designed the cover and my very lovely art teacher took me down to a printing press and they turned it into a hardcover book. Awesome. So uh, it was called Wade's Point back then, which isn't nearly as good a title. And it it's the, the sort of, so it's really, it's very much split into like the backstory and the present day narrative. The present day narrative has changed quite a lot. The characters, mm. the characters are, fairly similar but um there's a lot more emphasis on there's a lot more romance in it now there's a lot more emphasis on school um but the the backstory which is explored through Gwen's diary entries Gwen's the main character 
that's almost word for word what I wrote when I was 16. So what made you pull that out and go, let's revisit and see whether we can, you know, get this out there? I was actually talking to one of the HarperCollins sales reps at an event for In the Quiet and I and I think I'd been talking to to the group about how I'd written you know, quite prolifically as a teenager and Michelle told me to go back into my drawer of manuscripts and to look at what was in there um, and because I'd sort of just written them all off and I went back in there and pulled out a few and mostly they're sort of bad Saddle Club fan fiction. <laughs> but um, there, was, there was this, you know, this manuscript that I'd written and bound up as a, tw- as a year 12 student and I, um, yeah, I sort of pulled that out, edited it and sent it to um, HarperCollins and my agent and, yeah, it sort of trundled along. Here we are. So <sighs> when you read that, not as a teen, do you think you read the manuscript in a different light? Do you, were you looking at it differently? It was a really weird experience, actually, because I think normally when you're editing your writing, it's something that you've written in the last few months or maybe the last couple of years at a stretch. And and I hadn't realized how much the story had sort of set. It was almost like a memory because I'd written it, you know, 12 years ago. It was like a memory. And it was quite hard for me to think in terms of editing it structurally because it felt so cemented and it just was what it was. So. Mm. It, it was quite a it was quite a mind bend trying to get back into that world, but um some things hadn't aged very well, and it was it was and it was interesting. Like I put I put my favorite meals or songs I'd liked or little experiences or conversations I'd overheard. So it was really it was almost like reading a diary. It's crazy, isn't it? Mm. Because I mean I read things now, like even things that are published. Like I I will have to go back and check on things in the Mapmaker Chronicles for, for something I'm doing. And I read it now and it's like someone else wrote it and it's, yes. it's not that long ago. <laughs> so I can't imagine what it was like reading, you know, what was essentially your diary from when you were 16. <laughs> mm, it was bizarre. So as far as you're concerned, having now written both adult and YA fiction, what do you see as the primary differences? Um, not as much as I would have thought there'd be. And I think that that is to do with the sort of story that Pearl is. It deals with very similar issues to my adult books. But I think for me that there's no difference in the complexity or the the emotions that are in there or, or the, you know, the the quite dark events. It's, it's, they're very similar in that way. And mm. I think, I think often there's this tendency to sort of underestimate teens and mm. assume that they've got less capacity for emotional complexity or you know whatever it is and um I think writing peers for Pearl really emphasized for me that you know they they shouldn't be underestimated at all so you didn't find that you had to think about your reader differently when writing peers for Pearl like did you have to have a teen in your head or did you have kind of yourself as a teen in your head already Probably myself as a teen. And, and of course, there's the things like, you know, drinking and swearing and, you know, drug use or whatever it might might be that, you know, you wouldn't think twice about putting in an adult book that, you know, you probably aren't going to put into a 14-plus young adult book. But that, yeah. for me, is very surface. Yeah, okay. So the friendship aspect of Peers for Pearl is something that's been very well reviewed, like that inside the sort of teen friendship vibe. Do you think it's because that first draft was written while you were just in that zone? I think so. And, and I actually, I actually um, worked the friendship stuff. It was there, but that's something I really emphasised and highlighted when I came back to it. Oh, okay. So you actually mm. brought that out in the editing? Yes, and when, you, when you're doing that, like just from a craft perspective, how do you do that? What sort of things do you look at doing? When you think to yourself, the friendship aspect of this is something I really want, you know, to bring out, what do you do to, to, to kind of do that? Is it a case of rewriting scenes? Is it a case of rewriting dialogue? How, how do you, you know, bring that friendship to the fore? Um, for me, uh, I, I've actually – based the friendship between Gwen and Loretta on my friend Maddie who I've grown up with mm. and um I saw so it was sort of just a question of what would Maddie do when I was <laughs> editing it does Maddie know this <laughs> no she doesn't actually <laughs> <laughs> I 
Oh, you've been outed. <laughs> um, so, so for me, it was very much just getting almost getting into my own head and thinking, okay, if this was me and Maddie having this, you know, this conversation or walking down the beach, what would happen? So it is, it is probably more, there are more autobiographical elements in this story than either of my other adult works. Okay. Do you, your first two novels were kind of towards the literary fiction end of the bookshelf. Would you put P is for Pearl in the same area or not so much? I really struggle with what literary actually is. <laughs> and, and both. <laughs> I spend a lot of time, you know, just, just pondering all the different ways that books can be labelled and categorised. I, I think that it definitely would fall into the sort of same spot as on the young adult scale that um, Aiken in the Quiet Fall on the adult scale. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. Well, that's your that's your thing, isn't it? That's your style and your voice. So you're not going to change them to write something, a different sort of demographic, are you? You just bring the same um, style of voice to a different demographic. So that makes sense. So now that you've been published in both kind of areas, do you feel yourself naturally gravitating towards one or the other for future ideas? I'm actually planning to sort of do a swap every year at this stage. So my next book out will be an adult book and then it'll be another YA. Um, And so, I mean, I actually, I think they complement each other quite nicely and I'm really enjoying sort of shifting between the two, I guess they're genres. Um, So at the moment I'm sort of at the tail end of my next adult book and I've started sort of mulling about what my next YA might be about and it's it's quite it's almost a slightly sort of completely different headspace but it's just enough to feel like you're not going to go stale yeah okay and have you seen different approaches in the marketing of your books like in the sense of um how much promotion you do yourself through social media and other activities do you need to get more engaged online for the YA stuff or not um that's a good question. <laughs> I'm full of good questions. It's what I do. <laughs> I um, I tend to spend most of my time on Instagram where I post a lot of pictures of my animals and all the stuff I'm growing in my garden because I am 90 years old. Um, <laughs> you sound like me. <laughs> um, but in terms of what I'm sort of posting, I haven't shifted that yet. I might find that I need to as I sort of go along. It's, it's only been – the promo's only just sort of ramping up yep. for me. It's been going on in the background at the publisher for a while, but, you know, the book's just come out and it's – so I'll sort of be thinking about, you know, if I do need to shift or maybe shift onto a, another platform a little bit more, although I do think that Instagram tends to be pretty good for young people. Um, young people. <laughs> young people. With That's just so old. <laughs> So um, I haven't changed anything yet, but I'll see how I go. And, and I'm, you know, going to be doing some school visits and that sort of thing, which I'm really excited about. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask you about that, whether or not that was a new sort of area for you and how you felt about the whole school visit thing. I'm super excited. I used to run therapy groups for young people and it's something I've really missed, having oh, that interaction. Okay. So, so you're ready for year nine boys I'm... on a Friday afternoon? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> We had this Is conversation. anyone ever ready for Year 9 Boys on a Friday afternoon? No, it's so funny because I've never forgotten. We, we interviewed Tristan Banks, um, the author who does middle grade and YA, and he was telling us about this nightmare um, school visit that was a whole, you know, it was like a group of, you know, however many Year 9 boys on a Friday afternoon, and he said he's never worked so hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, say no is all I can say. <laughs> Um, so are you a full-time writer now or are you fitting writing in around other stuff? At the moment I'm writing full-time. So I'm working on my novels and then I do a bit of freelance stuff. I judge competitions. Um, and we're also looking at turning our little tiny farm into something that's semi-commercial. So I've been working away on that as well. Terrific. And do you have a writing routine? Like are you someone who gets up at five every morning and does their words or are you more of an ad hoc? kind of as and when I I have so much admiration for the people that get up at 5am and have that really strict routine I'm envious um I'm I'm incredibly ad hoc I don't plot things I don't 
I don't have plans. I don't have set writing hours. I just, I'll write in really big chunks. So I can, I recently, to finish a, the version of the adult book that I'm working on, I did, I think it was 16 or 17 straight hours. And then Ooh. I slept for five and then I did another nine. Wow. Um, did you have carpal tunnel issues after that? I felt, I felt pretty out of it. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> Um, okay, so you're not sort of a thousand words a day. You're more like, no. I've got to get this done and down yeah. and into it. Okay. Um, and are you someone who has lots, like your writing process, do you have lots and lots of ideas all the time or do you find that the next big idea sort of comes as you're finishing up with something else? I have, I constantly have ideas and sometimes for me the big tricky thing is actually being able to work out which ideas are actually going to go somewhere and have enough substance to them. Mm. Um, sometimes I don't work that out until I'm halfway through a very bad manuscript. Ah, awkward. Yeah. Do you, so do you, um, when you have an idea, if you're working on something, like for example, you're finishing up the adult novel at the moment, do you, um, and, and you've got some random new idea comes along, what do you do with it? Do you put it all in a file and come back to it later or do you get yourself distracted and write 10,000 words before you know it and then think, oh, no, I need to finish this other thing? Or how do you manage all of those ideas that you have? Um, I'm definitely the sort of person that will be sitting down to you know have to finish this manuscript and I'll go and write 10,000 words on another story. Um, <laughs> that's, that's 100% me. Um, but I think it can be really useful because then instead of, it can be really daunting. I think, I don't think there's anything as daunting as a writer as sitting down and staring at the blinking cursor of word or Scrivener or whatever program you're using and not having an idea, but knowing you need to write something. Yeah. So just having, and, and it might just be a paragraph that I've written or, yeah. you know, a little snippet of dialogue or it might be the blurb of a, you know imaginary non-existent book that I've just written down and I find that just sort of alleviates some of that pressure when it is time to start working on the next project. Because you've always started, haven't you? You've always mm. got something to be getting on with. Yes. Okay. That's great. All right. Um, well, now we come to our last and final and most exciting question. <laughs> um, Eliza, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers? The top three tips are, and they're probably not going to be cutting any new ground. Oh, come but- on read don't just read in the genre that you want to write in read every genre you can get your hands on so read crime read children's read biography read memoir read fiction read fantasy just read as broadly as you can and I sort of felt that that was a no-brainer but I've met quite a like quite a few people who are writing but they just don't read at all and I don't and for me writing is so much Reading is so much part of my writing process that I'm quite intrigued as to how you do one without the other. But so that would be my big piece of advice: just read absolutely everything. Do you read while you're writing something, or do you tend to read between manuscripts? Um, this is this working on this adult novel is the first time I've had to shy away from fiction while I was writing. Every other every other story I've worked on, I have read quite prolifically the whole way through. Um, I've actually been reading cookbooks. Cookbooks? Yes. Great. (laughs) So you're eating very well at your house, are you, at the moment? No, I'm eating two-minute noodles, but I'm reading about a lot of nice food. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fantastic. All right, so what's tip two for aspiring writers? Tip two is actually recognising how you write. So for a very long time, I'd go to, I went to a lot of writing workshops, had a lot of authors speak and all of them seemed to say that they were, they were very, so, you know, you have plotters or pants. so you either plot everything really carefully or you fly by the seat of your pants. And every author that I heard speak was a plotter. So I went home and I tried to plot everything and, you know, be very, very organized and have every chapter outlined and all that sort of thing. And it's just not how my brain operates and it was sort of pushing a boulder up a hill and it made things really difficult. So I think being able to recognize how you write, so whether you're the sort of person that needs to, you know, write, you know, 500 or a thousand words every day or whether you're better off writing in a big stint once or twice a week and then just letting it sit and churn away in the back of your head in between or, you know, whether, you know, you need to write chronologically or whether it's better for you to just write all the scenes that jump out at you. So being really critical and 
really interrogating whether how you're writing is what's best for your brain and how you operate, I think is really important. Very good advice. And number three? Number three is let it, let your writing sit for as long as you possibly can. And I, I'm still guilty of this. I'll finish something and I'll immediately want to send it off. Mm. And you actually can't pick up on things. I mean, it's difficult to pick up on in things, you know, in your own writing anyway, but you give your, the more time you give yourself in between the writing and the reading, the more likely that you are actually going to pick up those typos, pick up the inconsistencies in the scenes, pick up all those little things. Mm. So, and it, you know, and it, you know, I think that is advice that is circulated a lot, just, you know, put your writing in a drawer, but it is, it is really hard to do. And it's so important. So true. It's hard to fight that urge, isn't it? To just be like, I'm, this is done. I'm sending it. This is great. I've had enough. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, we wish you all the best with P is for Pearl and with the other works that you're on. Where can people find you online? What is your website address? My website address is www.elizahenryjones.com and I'm Eliza Henry Jones on Instagram as well. And is that your main social? That's is my main. Insta? Yeah, okay. I am on Twitter and I've got Twitter and Facebook pages as well, but Instagram is like my happy place. You like to be. And that's the thing with social media, isn't it? You just, you need to find your happy place and mm. work, work on that as opposed to trying to spread yourself too thin in places that you don't particularly want to be. All right. Well, brilliant. Um, thank you so much. And uh, we'll you. look forward to seeing how Piers for Pearl goes out there in the big world. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, Become a Children's Author, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. That's writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. Oh, my God, I can't believe that she wrote... The first draft of P is for Pearl when she was 16. I mean, I don't think I was doing any such thing when I was 16. Well, I think the fascinating thing about it is the fact that she's written a book a year since she was 14. So that was mm. my first startling <laughs> revelation there. Wow. But also the other thing that really surprised me was when I asked her the question about whether or not the book had changed much from that from that first draft, that 16-year-old first draft, and she said, no, not really. I was somewhat taken aback, I have to admit, because I would have thought that it would have required um, a lot of work. But, you know, I think that one of the things that the reviewers are saying about it is just how incredibly um, genuine the voice is and, of course, the voice and also the way that the friendships between the two girls in the book is is depicted. Um, and I think the reason for that is obviously she was just right there in the zone, like there she was, 16, writing this book. So um, anyway, peas for Pearl. Um, if you've enjoyed Eliza's uh, adult novels, I think you'll really enjoy it because, as I said, I think one of the, the real strengths of those works have been her teen characters. So, um, yeah. Wow. Awesome. Wonderful. All right. So what are you uh, doing in the coming week, Al, before we chat again? Uh, right. Well, Write a Book with Al is wrapping up because I have just about finished um, writing the book and it's nearly are the end serious? of February. That's fantastic. Well, I, yeah. Well, I was only working on about sort of aiming to write about 20,000 words and um, I'm not exactly sure how many I have, but it's around that, if not more. So I'm pretty happy with that. Um, so yeah, so I'm working on that. I've got some editing to do. I'm actually editing a couple of manuscripts at the same time at the moment, um, ready for, you know, submission and things like that. Um, and I'm also working on a new course for you, Val, which I have been informed by the Writer Centre team needs to be finished this week. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be doing that. 
<laughs> it's very exciting though, guys. We can't wait to tell you all about it. Sorry to, you know, no, exciting. tease you a bit, but it's pretty cool. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, very exciting, Al's new course. Uh, that sounds like fun. Like you're going to be busy. Yeah, well, it's I'll, busy. I'll be, like, I, uh, yeah, it's a busy week. I'll be editing a manuscript but not mine, somebody else's, uh, as I mm-hmm. mentioned. So, and I need to finish that this week as well. Mm-hmm. And um, our course, the uh, the online version of um, professional business writing, something a little bit different, it will be launching soon. And we spent the weekend filming. It was really fun, you know, because we were, it's something a little bit different that we're doing. We've got uh, an actor introducing the modules and it's actually going to be oh. really fun because, you know, we're going to make business writing fun. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone can make business writing fun, yes. you can, Val. I have no doubt in my mind. All right. So all. <laughs> where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me um, at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer, and you will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. Please connect with both of us on Facebook through the uh, Facebook group, So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community. And, um, yeah, make sure you click to join. It's free to join and it's an awesome place with fantastic, fantastic writers and uh, or people who are just interested in writing and, and listening to this podcast. Um and you'll find all the show notes at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.